0: And um, last week we did a and you guys were were really good uh, you've hung with me as we work through acts and we did a whole chapter last week, which is you know when you go through the scripture and you're teaching through the scripture, I mean you can spend weeks on one or two verses depending on how you you, you go through the scripture and so um, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to highlight certain things. Uh, I've kind of been waiting to get to Acts chapter 15 uh, because I believe Acts chapter 15 is a really, really important uh, chapter, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But right now, I want to talk to the kids for just a minute. Are you kids listening? You got your ears on? Who, who's got their ears on? Got your ears on? Okay. Okay. Does anyone not have their ears on? Anyone forget their ears this morning? Have you ever forgotten your ears? Yeah, I have. I mean, they're always with me, but sometimes I forget to use them. We need to pay attention so we don't forget to use our ears. So listen to this, Acts chapter 15, the very first verse says, And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. In other words, what they were saying to these believers in Jesus was unless you do certain things, unless you keep the law, you can't be saved. In other words, you have to work for your salvation in order to be saved. Now, when they came down and began to teach that in the church, it created a big a big stink, a big stir, a big dispute. Such a big dispute that they all went down to Jerusalem and they all had this big meeting to talk about. Do men have to keep the law in order to be saved or are Men saved by grace through faith simply by believing in Jesus. Now, you kids, when I talk about simply by believing in Jesus, do you think that means that we don't have to do anything? Who, who, who knows that believing in Jesus means we're going to do certain things. Do you know that? Yeah, we're going to live certain ways. And we're not going to do some things and we're not going to live other ways. So what I really want you to know is that God does not love you because you have earned his love. So I want someone who, who here, not you adults, but who here that's not considered an adult, a kid, a child. It could be any age. How many of you children, kids, have never ever done anything wrong? Anyone? You've never done anything wrong. Is there anyone here that's never done anything wrong? Okay, how many of you here know that your parents love you? If you know your parents love you, I want to see your hand. You know your parents love you. So you just said that you've all done something wrong, right? But yet you've also just told me that your parents love you. So do your parents love you because you always do everything right? No? So even though you do wrong things sometimes and you make mistakes, are you telling me your parents still love you? Yes? Yes? So you don't have to earn your parents' love. You don't have to work for your parents' love. They just love you because you're their child. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah? Is that what you expect, that your parents are going to love you because you're their child? Well, guess what? That's, That's how God loves us. See, what these men were saying to to the believers was you have to keep all of these rules and regulations, these laws, in order to be saved. And in a sense, it was kind of like saying you have to earn God's love. You have to earn your salvation. Now, none of us here, old or young, and we're all children of somebody. We're all children of God in a sense because we're all made in God's image. But we're not all children of God in the same sense, just like we're all children, but we're not all children of the same parents, but we're all children. And none of us came to be children because we earned that, it was given to us. And the love that our parents have for us, just like the love that our Father in Heaven has for us, didn't come because we earned it, it was freely given to us. God freely loves you, not because you do everything right, but because you're his child. Just like your parents love you, even though you don't do everything right, they love you because you're their child. Now, how many of you kids have ever been corrected by your parents? I won't ask you how that happened. I mean, I won't ask you what you had to do to get corrected. I won't ask you how that correction came. When my kids were little, we had a wooden spoon, and we drew a a frown face on it, and we named that spoon Woody. And Woody is who would administer the painful love that we would give our children (laughs) so that they would know that we really do love them. Now we don't, even the Bible says this, the Bible says we don't like to be disciplined by our parents, but we're disciplined by our parents because our parents love us. And so just like even though your parents discipline you and you don't like their discipline sometimes, you still know they love you. Do you know God does the same thing? Sometimes God corrects us and God corrects us because he loves us. It's a beautiful thing. But you didn't earn God's correction. Well, you might, have earned, you might have earned his correction, but you didn't earn his love that brought his correction because the point of God correcting us, just like the point of your parents correcting you, is because they love you. In fact, the Bible says if parents don't correct their children, then parents, you don't really love your children. And so here's what I want you guys to know. Just like you didn't earn the love of your parents, you can't earn the love of God. And God doesn't love you because you work for his love. God loves you because he is love, and he chose to love you. And the Bible says that there's not anything you can ever do as a child of God that will separate you from the love of God. That's good news, isn't it? That's the gospel. Okay, so let's continue on. Let's look at this 15th chapter of, of uh, Acts. Now, I'll tell you right now, to the relief of many of you who know me, we're not going to try to get through Acts chapter 15 all at once today. In fact, we're going to park in Acts chapter 15 for a while. Uh, at least for two weeks, maybe longer than two weeks. And the reason that we're going to do that is because Acts chapter 15 is that important of a chapter, uh, and there's some really important things that we need to, to get from this. So one thing that's really, um, that, that I need to say every so often to you guys, uh, you know, I meet with these, uh, I had a group of pastors that was here Friday, and we're, we're going through a... a series of videos together, and we're talking about our culture, and we're trying to encourage one another to be pastors that stand up and tell the truth, and, and that we would fear God more than we fear men, and that we need to understand that uh, we live in a day and a time, we live in a culture in which our Christianity, our belief in God is not popular, um, I think for some of us who have lived on this earth and in this nation long enough, we just assume everybody loves Jesus and everybody's going to do the right thing and, and uh, God and country, you know, that's what we're all about. But that's not, that's not the world we live in any longer. That, in fact, is fading. And so our responsibility as believers is to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. And so Acts chapter 15 is one of those chapters that is really crucial for us today in our understanding of how we are to rightly divide the word of truth. Acts chapter 15 contains the decree or the letter that was written from the Jerusalem Council and sent to the Gentile churches. And this letter informed those believing Gentiles that they did not have to keep the law of Moses, they didn't have to be circumcised and abide by the law of Moses in in all that that entailed in order to be saved. That they were saved the same way the Jews were saved, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by the deeds of the law. And as we understand the context from which this letter was written, recorded for us here in Acts chapter 15, then we're going to better understand how to rightly divide uh, the word of God and the word of truth. Now, one of the things that, that I am tasked with as a pastor, uh, and, and elders, you know, we, we pray God raise up elders, and we, we're taking men through biblical eldership training right now. Uh, Whether they are called to be elders or not, every man, every person should know what your elder's responsibility is in the church. And one of the most uh, important, if not the primary responsibility or role of an elder is to protect the flock from false teachings. Ephesians chapter 4 lays out, and and reveals to us that Jesus gave gifts to the church, some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. I'm a pastor and a teacher. And Paul goes on in, in those verses and says, the reason Jesus gave these gifts to the church was for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. There's some people who believe that Sunday morning should be an evangelistic meeting where we're, trying to make this the most attractive place possible to draw people in to get saved. I want people to come here and get saved, but I want you as believers, and I'm talking to you as believers, I can't see into your heart, I don't know what's in your mind, I I don't know, I'm going to take it by faith later on when we get ready to come to this table, That if you come to this table, you are acknowledging that you trust in Jesus. Or when our children come to the table, because we do allow our children, if parents allow them, we allow children to come because children of covenant parents are raising those children up to know what it means to trust in Jesus. It's very popular in the world today, and I realize I've not even gotten to my text yet. <laughs> but I told you, we're going we're to we're park in Acts chapter 15 for a while, but it's important for you to understand these things. It's very popular in the world today. I talk to a lot of people uh, all the time. And it's not uncommon for people to find out I'm a pastor and they say, oh, yeah, you know, I went to church when I was growing up, but we don't go to church. And and we're just going to let our kids decide what they want to believe. When they get old enough, we're going to let them choose what they want to believe and if they want to go to church. And, you know, and I... I want to say, I don't always say it. Sometimes I do, depending on who I'm talking to and what the context is and if I feel God prompting me. But what I really want to say every time I hear that is, no, you're you're not choosing to let your kids decide. You're choosing to let someone else raise your kids. You're choosing to let someone else influence your children, teach your children what to believe. Because if you're not teaching your children what to believe, somebody is. The culture is teaching your children what to believe. And so the Bible says, the Apostle Paul wrote in his letter to the Ephesians that it is the job of pastors and teachers and all of the offices of the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. This is not an evangelistic meeting. This is an equipping meeting. You are here to be equipped so that you can go back out into the world and be a light in a darkness, to be a witness to Jesus. You need to know What you believe and why you believe it. You need to have a reason for the hope that's in you. And here's what I found out. A lot of Christians don't have a reason for the hope. I'm not saying they don't have hope. I'm not saying they're not saved. I'm saying they don't know what it really means to be saved. They don't understand their salvation. And they can't speak to the issues of the day and give a reason for the hope. And the Bible is really clear that we need to be able to do that. Not so that we can go out and beat people over the head with the Bible, because we should not do that. But as we go out and live our lives, as we go out and do our jobs, as we go out and recreate and play or grocery shop or get gas or encounter people by chance, by chance. And we begin to have that conversation with that stranger that we just met, and it goes to spiritual things, we need to be able to give them a reason for the hope that we have. And this is my responsibility as a pastor, to equip you to be able to do that. That means when you come, you need to come with your ears on, just like I asked the kids today. See, that's not just for the kids, that's for all of us. We need to come with our ears on, with our hearts open, with our minds open, we need to be sponges ready to receive what God has for us. We need to let that word be planted in our heart. And God knows when he'll bring it to fruition when we're talking to that person. And all of a sudden that scripture just comes to mind. That you weren't thinking about. But God just brings it to your mind. Because it's appropriate for what? For the conversation that you're having. Now, let's, uh, let's read... I'm going to read this chapter, though I'm going to skip through parts of it. I'm going to read beginning in in Acts chapter 15. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, then I'm going to read verse 5. Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had... therefore. When Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. Verse 5. So they get to, uh, they, they leave Antioch and they're traveling to Jerusalem. They get to Jerusalem, and when they get to Jerusalem, they're having this discussion. It says, But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, It is necessary, that's an important word, necessary. It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. It is necessary, they said. Then verses 6 through 11, they're in Jerusalem. And then after much dispute, the Bible says, they come together. And Peter, in the midst of the council, reminds the council and reminds all those gathered there that it was him who went first to the Gentiles <clears throat> by the divine providence of God. Remember when we were in Acts chapter 9 and 10, we looked at how God led Peter from the house of Simon the Tanner, and he, this divine appointment when this centurions come to his house, and he has this vision of the sheep being let down, and God says, kill and eat, and Peter says, I've never let anything unclean touch my lips. And three times, God shows Peter this sheep And and then God says, don't call unclean what I've called clean. And in that moment, the Gentiles knock at the door of Simon the Tanner and said, hey, we're looking for this guy named Peter. An angel told our our, our master, uh, Cornelius, to come here and Peter would be here. And so Peter says, don't you guys remember when I told you what happened when I went to the house of Cornelius and in the very midst of me telling them about uh, Christ, the spirit of God fell on them just as it fell on us? And so salvation has come to the Gentiles just as it has come to the Jews. And the council in Jerusalem said, how can we deny this? We can't. Then in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas, they get up and they give their testimony, telling the council of all the signs that God worked among the Gentiles as they were preaching the gospel. Then in verse 13 through 17, James, not James the brother of John, but James brother of Christ, who was the head of the council there in Jerusalem, stands up to quote the prophet Amos concerning salvation that would come to the Gentiles. And then he gives the council his determination after hearing everything that was said. Now let me read to you the rest of the chapter, beginning of verse 18. Acts chapter 15, verse 18, known to God from eternity are all his works, this is James speaking Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we, you should make note of these four things in this decree, that we write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath, did it please the apostles and the elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men from among the brethren. Verse 23, they wrote this letter by them. So here's the letter that was written some 2,000 years ago, sent to the Gentile churches in Antioch and throughout Asia. It's the reason we're here today talking about Jesus. It's the reason that we're not still living under the yoke of bondage that the law of Moses had put upon uh, the Jews. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings, since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary, there's that word again, these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. There's the letter. Short and sweet. It reminds me of our Constitution. Very short, very sweet, very to the point, but comprehensive in its scope of how it governs the way we are to live our lives. Now, the council sent this letter to inform the Gentiles that no command had come from them saying, you have to be circumcised and keep the law in order to be saved. This letter commands the Gentiles to faithfully embrace God's holiness through Jesus Christ while rejecting the sinful practices of an unbelieving world. What the Jerusalem council was telling the Gentiles is embrace holiness, live holy lives. And it's not necessary for you to be circumcised and to keep the law of Moses in order to be holy because our holiness doesn't come from our keeping of the law. Our holiness comes from Christ. And in Christ, who has made us holy, we are to therefore live holy lives. So what we're going to do beginning today, and today obviously is an overview, we're going to begin talking about this letter and really the four very simplistic points made in this letter. And we're going to talk about this from the context of the scripture. In particular, I don't know if you've ever heard of anything called the holiness code. Well, if you were a Jew, you would know what the Holiness Code is. You would understand what the Holiness Code, not only what it is, but where it is and what it says. And the Holiness Code wasn't an extra book or writing that the Jews had. The Holiness Code was contained in the Scripture, and it was found in the book of Leviticus, specifically from chapters 17 through 26. That was known as the Holiness Code. The simple guidelines of this decree came from what is known as the Holiness Code found in those chapters of Leviticus. Specifically, those decrees came from chapter 17 and chapter 18 of Leviticus. This is going to be central to our discussion of this chapter so let's look at the four brief admonitions contained in this letter. And so in the letter, here's what the letter said. For it seemed good, verse 28, for the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Here are the four necessary things laid out in this letter or this decree to the Gentiles that you abstain from things offered to idols. That's from Leviticus 17, 7 through 9. That you abstain from blood. That's from Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. That you abstain from things strangled. That's from Leviticus 17, 13 through 14. And that you abstain from sexual immorality, the entire 18th chapter of Leviticus covers and defines sexual immorality. This was a very short and simple summary of a potentially long and complex issue. And God laid the foundation in His Word for these things. These weren't new things. So the, I want you to understand the church in Jerusalem wasn't telling the Gentiles something new. They were telling the Gentiles exactly what the word of God said. What was true from the foundation of creation. Not not because Adam and Eve had the book of Leviticus to read at the foundation of creation. But because they had the knowledge of God and the law of God and the image of God. They bore it. And this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 1, the whole creation, every man, is without excuse because what can be known of God is made known in his creation. And his invisible attributes are clearly seen so that they are without excuse. So the Jews have Moses and the prophets, they are without excuse. You might say, well, the Gentiles didn't have Moses and the prophets, and what about those poor people living on remote islands who have never... Uh, Seen a middle aged white missionary holding a black King James Bible, how are they going to know? Well, the Bible says every person, past, present, and future, who will ever live on this created earth is without excuse because the invisible attributes of the Creator are clearly seen. They're written in us. We know the truth. The problem is not our lack of knowledge of the truth, the problem is we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's exactly what Paul says. In Romans chapter 1. And so the Jerusalem council is not letting the Gentiles off the hook. The Jerusalem council is not giving them some new doctrine that they came up with. The Jerusalem council is giving the word of God. And telling these Gentiles embrace holiness. Live holy because God is holy. So this short, simple summary of a potentially long and complex issue, God laid out in four brief points. These four brief points are comprehensive in their scope as they address really three main areas of our life. And this is what we're going to focus on as we go through Acts chapter 15. And those three main areas of our life are idolatry, food, and sexual immorality, it really all revolves around our worship. This is all about our worship of God. Idolatry inherently speaks of our worship. And they're talking about here, these points are addressing specifically our worship in whether we embrace or reject idolatry our worship and our food. Imagine food has to do with our worship. Food has to do with our spiritual life. And sexual immorality. Uh, that, that seems obvious to us, right? So let's look at idolatry. Well, let's let's let me let me do something. Before we look at idolatry. I want to read a letter to you. Uh, now this, this letter was a real letter written to, I don't know if you guys ever have heard of Dr. Laura Schlesinger. She used to have a nationwide radio show. And she's a, like a psychiatrist, psychologist. She was Jewish. And... Um, And so this was a real letter written to Dr. Laura Schlesinger that went viral uh, and and has made its way across the globe, and people have used it in various ways. And and I never watched the uh, series that was on, I I think in the 90s called, or whenever it was on, called The West Wing. It was a a show about the um, White House. And, and actually, they use this letter in an episode of the West Wing to really jab at Christians and jab at people who believe the Bible. Now, I'm going to read this letter to you, and then I'm going to tell you why I read the letter to you, and that's going to set the stage for next week. Unless you guys want me to go ahead and go through the rest of this, and I can keep you all here until 1230 if you want me to. But I would rather take my time and, uh, and, and let y'all believe that I really can not get you out on time or relatively on time, right? So I want, you, I want to read this. this. This letter was actually sent to Dr. Laura, and, and you'll understand uh, the purpose of the letter. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding... I'm not going to read the whole letter. I just selected points. Thank you for educating uh, people regarding God's law. I have learned a great deal from your show, and I try to share that knowledge with as many people as I can. By the way, her show was not about the Bible. She was a psychologist. It was just about living. It was like Dear Abby on the radio, kind of. When someone tries to defend the homosexual lifestyle, for example... I simply remind them that Leviticus 18.22 clearly states it is to be an abomination. End of debate. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the specific laws and how to best follow them. When I burn a bull on the altar as a sacrifice, I know it creates a pleasing odor for the Lord. Leviticus 1, nine. The problem is my neighbors. They claim the odor is not pleasing to them. Should I smite them? <laughs> I have a neighbor who insists on working on the Sabbath. Exodus 35.2 clearly states he should be put to death. Am I morally obligated to kill him myself? A friend of mine feels that even though eating shellfish is an abomination, Leviticus 11.10, it is a lesser abomination than homosexuality. I don't agree. Can you settle this for me? I know from Leviticus 11:6 6 through 8 that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. But may I still play football if I wear gloves? <laughs> My uncle Joe has a farm. He violates Leviticus 19, 19 by planting two different crops in the same field, as does his wife by wearing garments made of two different kinds of thread, cotton polyester blend. He also tends to curse and blaspheme a lot. Is it really necessary that we go to all the trouble of getting the whole town together to stone them? Leviticus 24, 10 through 16. Couldn't we just burn them to death at a private family affair like we do with people who sleep with their in-laws? I know you've studied these things extensively, so I'm confident you can help. Thank you again for reminding us that God's word is eternal and unchanging. Your devoted disciple and adoring fan. Now this, I actually printed this from Snopes. Not that I believe Snopes, but this really is, this really was a real letter. But I was interested, and the reason I printed it from Snopes, because I was interested in what Snopes had to say about this letter. After they verified that it was true, and they told how people used it and attributed it to themselves, and were actually, uh, journalists lost their jobs for taking this letter and and attributing it to themselves, um, they don't know who wrote the letter. It remains anonymous. Um, but here's what Snope said. Simply put, this is their summary. Simply put, the letter pointed out a logical flaw in the homosexuality is wrong because the Bible says so argument. If homosexuality is wrong because it goes against God's law as outlined in the Bible, why aren't any number of activities now viewed as innocuous, like eating shrimp or bacon? Why aren't those things unacceptable? Those things that are now viewed as in, in, innocuous but proscribed as unacceptable in the Bible, also those are also offenses against God's law. How can one part of Leviticus be deemed as etched in stone when the other parts have been discarded as archaic? Well, thank you, Snopes, for that commentary on the Bible because that's what they just gave was a commentary on the Bible. And what Snopes just told you is you're a fool if you believe one thing in the Bible and then don't believe the other things. And what they're really telling you to do is what you need to do is just reject the whole thing because it's contradicting itself. So what we're going to do as we go through Acts chapter 15 is talk about why not only is Snopes wrong, what they said is absolutely blasphemous. Because you, as a believer in Jesus Christ who may or may not eat shrimp and bacon. I don't know. You might even eat shrimp wrapped in bacon. <laughs> what, what a sin. My gosh. And you don't have a problem with that, but somehow you think that same-sex mirage or homosexual relationships or... Incestual relationships are sinful. And why would you think that if eating shrimp-wrapped bacon is not sinful? Then why would those things be sinful? Because the Bible speaks against both of them. And so you have people in the world today who, who literally bring these things up. I, I hear it almost on a daily basis. Making fun of Christians. Oh yeah, those Christians who think homosexuality is a sin, they're the ones that are ordering shrimp with their steak and they don't even know the Bible. And the thing is, do you know why you can order shrimp with your steak? Do you know why when you go to a wedding you can wear a poly cotton blend shirt and not be in sin? But if that wedding is a same-sex marriage, you are in sin... That wedding is a sin because you've got two men getting married? So what you wear to the wedding is not a sin, but the wedding itself could be a sin. And the world would say, well, if you wear a poly-cotton blend to that homosexual wedding, you're just as sinful as the two homosexuals getting married. Or if you wear a poly-cotton blend to your office on Monday morning, you're just as sinful as those two homosexuals who got married on Saturday evening. And there are a lot of Christians who don't know how to answer that. Because then they go to Leviticus and they read the Bible, and it's like, hmm, well, well, uh, well, uh, hmm. well, I'm not sure what to say about that, but I know one is okay and one is not okay. But I, I don't know why. And what I'm saying is, you need to know why. You need to know why the Jerusalem Council wrote that letter and told those Gentiles it's okay to eat bacon-wrapped shrimp. But it's not okay for you to participate in sexually immoral relationships, whatever they may be, with whoever they may be with. We need to understand why it's okay for you not to keep the law of Moses. And what does that mean? Does that mean the whole thing's thrown out? Obviously not. So, today has been your introduction into the journey we will begin next week when we go into Acts chapter 15. And we're going to go as, as slow as we need to go because this is that important. Be, these are the issues that the culture is bombarding the church with. And I'm going to be honest with you. Google is not your friend. Just because you can find it on Google. Listen, I've got Logos Bible software, and I've got commentaries loaded on Logos Bible software that would lend you to to believe that we don't even know if Moses was a real guy or not. Or, you know, the Bible doesn't talk about homosexuality very much. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about bestiality very much either. But no one has a problem with calling that wrong. The Bible doesn't talk about a lot of things very much. But what it does talk about, it it doesn't have to repeat it endlessly. And we need to know as believers why we should believe what we should believe. And why we should accept what we should accept. And why we should reject what we should reject. Because the world is challenging us. The world is pushing against us, and because we've turned church into this social club that's all about making people feel good, I want you to feel good, but more than you feeling good, I want you to be equipped in Christ, I want you to have a fire lit under you to go out into the world and be a witness for Christ, because there are people really dying and going to eternity separated from Christ, and we have the answer. We have the gospel, and it is the gospel that saves men. It is the gospel that is the power of God to salvation. And we need to know, how is this letter sent to these Gentiles consistent with the gospel and consistent with the word of God, when there seems to be so many inconsistencies that the world is pointing out to me? How do I discern this? And as believers, this is my responsibility as a pastor, is to help you be able to discern that so that when you go out into the world, you you will have an answer for the hope so that you can order bacon-wrapped shrimp with your pork chops and not feel guilty at all while you sit with your friend and tell him that his homosexual relationship is a sin in the eyes of God. You need to be able to do that. And sadly, what I'm saying is, much of the church today does not know how to do that. They're hit with these things, and they don't have an answer. And the answer is to not just ignore it. The answer is just to pretend like no one asked the question. The answer is not to say, well, just because God says so. That can be an answer. Like like with your kids, sometimes you tell your kids, when you say no, and your kids say, why? And you say, because I said so. You don't, you're not obligated to give them a further explanation. God is not obligated to give us a further explanation. And I'm not saying you and, or I are going to have all the answers to all the questions. And at the end of the day, and at the end of our conversation, it might be because God says so in his word, and I believe God's word. And someone might say, well, I need something better than that. And I say, well, I can't really give you anything better than that. We can go on a journey of discovery together, and we can figure out how to rightly divide the word of truth, but at the end of the day, whether you agree with God or not, God is still God. His word is still his word, and you're either going to obey it or you're going to disobey it, whether you agree with it or not, whether you understand it or not. Understanding what God's telling us to do or not to do is very different than understanding why he's telling us what to do and what not to do. And we're not obligated to obey only when we understand why God's telling us to do what, we're, what he's telling us to do. We're obligated to obey all the time. He's given us the privilege to go into the word of God and search these things out and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, to have a reason for the hope that's within us. So that's where we will begin next Sunday. So if you're just really uh, ambitious and you want to read some really exciting literature, go to the book of Leviticus and read chapter 17 through 26. Read the Holiness Code. Read chapter 17 and 18 for sure. And and see what the Jerusalem Council was telling these Gentile believers, which I fall into that category because I'm a Gentile. All right. One last thing as we get ready to come to the table. And I am serious about this. Be careful when you Google things. Do you know the vast majority of seminaries today? Seriously, the majority of seminaries, the majority of critical scholarship has abandoned the word of God. There are many. Well, I, I mean, I watched them. I could, I could live stream endless clips of world-renowned theologians, well-known theologians, telling you why homosexuality is no longer sinful. That was just part of the culture of that day, just like the dietary laws and the ceremonial laws and the civil laws were. They don't apply to us today because we don't live in that culture. We don't live in that context, because we've evolved. Those don't apply anymore. And we really don't know who really wrote all of these books of the Bible. They're just all of these things written. You know, Moses may or may not have been a real person. We don't really know that. But to say that Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible is really kind of naive. We certainly don't believe that. We know that it was probably written much later in a a cultural context that, that... That's why they put the things in there that they put. But it was never meant to be taken as literal or God's word or something that we live by by some standard. We need to take it for what it is. That's what the world tells us. And you know what God tells us? Very much the same thing. We need to take it for what it is. We need to take it as the word of God. And you either take the Bible as the Word of God or you don't. And if you do take it by as the Word of God, then we're obligated to live by it. And so we need to understand what that means. And that's what we're going to talk about in the Sundays to come. As we get ready to come to the table, you, you are invited as you trust in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of this church, but we ask. And you should be a member of the church It's kind of like when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. That's not the Roman Catholic Church. That's the universal church of all believers, past, present, and future. We are members of that church. That's the church we believe in. That's what this table represents. Christ, the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, given up and poured out for his church, past, present, and future. So Christian, as you trust in Jesus, come to the table. We'll all take the elements and then we'll all take them together. Well, let's stand. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And don't be afraid of questions. Just because you don't have the answer to something, just because you can't understand something, don't ignore it. Don't ever believe that the Bible is not up to your challenge. Don't ever believe that the Bible's not up to any question, any criticism that the world can bring. The people alive today writing criticisms, making YouTube videos, posting articles and in all of the places they're able to post those, written and virtual, who think they're so smart, who think they're so spiritually evolved, who think that they have gained what no one else in human history have ever gained, and now we know the truth, and and we know the Bible is not true. And those poor, stupid Christians who still believe in that myth, and that mythical book, they're the problem. See, this is the way the world looks at us. We're the problem. And what I want you to know is that you should never be afraid of that. You should never be afraid of the criticism. You should never be afraid of the questions because the Bible has the answers. And if you don't know those answers, if you don't know how to answer those, this is what the Proverbs says, it's... It's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the honor of kings to search out a matter. And the Bible says that we are kings and priests unto God. That privilege is given to us as kings and priests unto God. Be hungry for the word. Be open to the word. Don't conform the word to your way of thinking. You conform to To what the word says. You become obedient to the word. You become conformed to God. And to his word. And don't worry about what the culture says. And don't worry about what names they call you. And don't worry. What they might do to you. The writer of Hebrews says. What can man do to me? And the answer is. He can't do anything. Except maybe kill my body. But he can't take my life. Because my life is hid with God in Christ. And if you have been saved by grace through Jesus Christ, your life is also hid with God in Christ. So trust Him. Be hungry for Him. Be thirsty for Him. Seek out and search out those things. Have an answer. Have a reason for the hope within you. Go out into this dark world and spread the light and give hope to people because there are So many hopeless people. And Jesus is the only hope we have in life or in death. Amen.